Uh, it's, it's really wonderful to be here with you. I mean, I go, like my colleagues, we go to some unfriendly places sometimes, you know? And they don't, they don't smile and cheer. They yeah, more growl and sneer, you know? Uh, in fact, uh, oh, it must have been over a year now ago, I, I went to Olympia, Washington. Now, Olympia, or Washington State, is probably one of the most unchurched states in the country from what I understand, you know? And uh, then if you go inside the state of Washington and go to Olympia, that's probably the least churched or uh, li- the city that has the fewest Christians in the state of Washington. And then if you go to a secular university campus in Olympia, you have hit spiritual rock bottom in America, you know. And so I, I got invited by a Christian club to give a talk. And I didn't know there would be such a thing at a uh, campus like this. But these, these were clever dudes. They were Christians, but they were more businessmen than anything else. They figured out that if they started a club, even if it was a Christian club, they then get access to asso- associated students' money. And so they'd kind of throw little uh, parties and bring in scholars that they wanted to talk to and hear from. And so they set this up. They got a big boatload of money. Uh, they, they flew me up. They picked me up at the airport, and they rushed me down to this college in Olympia. And, uh, and they told me that I was going to be addressing some topic in, you know, science and faith or something. And I'm walking into the building where this lecture is going to take place, and something catches the corner of my eye. It was me. I, my face was on a poster. And, and there were flames around my face, you know. And the... And the, the theme was, you know, come barbecue the Christian. <laughs> now, these, these young Christians uh, who put this together were, were business majors. Clearly, they had some real marketing minds, you know, because they, they were able to turn out a crowd. Uh, but it wasn't just the barbecue the Christian thing. There was a whole barbecue theme. I mean, when you walk into the building where this lecture was going to take place, you could actually smell the chicken wings <laughs> because they, people were wheeling in barrels full of Uh, chicken wings, barbecue chicken wings from the best barbecue place in town. You know, people are just floating into the classroom, you know. Uh, So I get there, and it was a pretty big lecture hall. I didn't think they could fill it up at first, but people just started to load in there because they wanted at the chicken wings. And so there were were professors and grad students and people in white lab coats, and and the whole atheist club was there wearing T-shirts sitting in the front row, you know. (laughs) You've seen that once or twice. Yeah, they're always turning out in their T-shirts in the front row. so there they are, and uh, so th- they told me what was really going on and said, yeah, just give a quick five-minute talk, and then we'll just throw it open to questions. And, if, and they told the crowd that you ask questions for an hour, uh, then we just release you to go get the chicken wings. All right. So, that was, so I gave a quick five-minute talk, and it got going. Uh, and I, I just threw it open to questions. Come barbecue the Christian. Go ahead. Well, they started asking questions. And uh, I got to tell you, some, something's changed over the last... 20 or 30 years since I've been doing this, the questions have changed. They've gotten, um, I don't know, stupider. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's as if these people got all of their theological knowledge from reading the Da Vinci Code. It, it was that bad. I'm, I'm not kidding. Almost every question had some sort of tie-in to the Da Vinci Code uh, take on Christianity. It was rather... You know, distressing, just the, the state of education about an important religious movement like Christianity. So it was kind of miserable. Uh, you can, in fact, I had to, the questions were so bad I had to help people ask better questions. <clears throat> you know, that would be more challenging for me if you formulated it this way, you know. I mean, you've heard some of those questions, haven't you? I mean, maybe on campus or around the streets here or in your family 
dinners. Uh, somebody will say, well, you know, I, I can't believe the Bible because it was translated so many times. What does that mean? And so I remember one guy asked that, I go, well, help me understand that. Do you, you mean the New Testament was originally written in Greek and then it was translated, what, into Latin and then maybe Swahili, then Japanese, Swedish, and, and finally English? They're like, uh... I said, maybe what you meant was they didn't have like, you know, digital reproduction technology back then, so, so uh, they wrote manuscripts and they had to copy them over the generations and maybe some errors slipped in over time. And the guy goes, yeah. That's, that's what I was talking about. <clears throat> oh my goodness. In fact, it was funny because at, at one point it just kind of dried up, you know? There, there weren't any more questions. They were just all looking at each other and me, you know? And they could still smell the wings, so there was a lot of pressure. <laughs> and um, uh, so I could see one guy, he's nudging the guy next to him to ask the question, you know? And this guy raises his hand and I go, yes, sir. He says, uh, he was just stretching for anything. He's like, um, do you like, uh, do, do, you, do you believe in baptism? And I said, uh, sir, not only do I believe in it, I've seen it done. <laughs> I, I stole that from G.K. Chesterton. That's a great line. Uh, but it's funny because they, they cracked up, and you could just tell at that moment when they started laughing, their shields went down. And suddenly, they were just, you know, we only had 15 minutes left, but they started to ask, like, you know, some some good questions about the spiritual life. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Why did you sign up for that project? And how does it affect your family and so on? And it was a kind of a good exchange. Well, uh, still, I think mostly on their mind was the chicken wings. And so uh, we finished. The organizers released them at the chicken wings. And they were stomping on each other and pushing each other out of the way to get to the chicken wings. And uh, now, there must have been a lot of, like, structural engineering majors or architecture majors in the group because they gave them little plates like that but they were able to construct towers <laughs> of chicken wings, you know? Uh, oh, and never forget this. So they're, eat, they're eating the chicken wings, and this woman who was one of the first to the table, she builds her tower, and, and she's got a wing, and she's munching on it. And I, could, I was talking to somebody over here, but I could see her out of the corner of my eye, coming around the bend here. Here she comes. She didn't ask a question during the open forum. She wanted to hit me with something afterwards. So here she comes around the bend, and she's eating her wings. She's coming up. She, she's already got schmutz on her face here, you know. And she comes up and she's waving a wing at me. She goes, Here's my thing. I go, yes, ma'am, what's your thing? She goes, uh, I, I have trouble with the Bible because uh, there aren't enough women in it. I thought she was kidding. So I, I was just kind of messing with her, you know, like, oh, yeah, I totally know what you mean. She's like, yeah? I said, yeah. Um, I, like, uh, for instance, uh, instead of the three wise men, it really should have been the three wise women. She's like, yeah. <laughs> and I said, that makes so much more sense because uh, women ask for directions, and so they, they would have arrived on time. <laughs> they, yeah, and, and, and they would have, for goodness sakes, they would have brought practical gifts, you know? They would have brought a casserole and a baby blanket and so on. <laughs> She's like, yeah. I go, nah. And they would, have, they would have helped deliver the baby and clean the stable. She's like, that, okay, you get it. And she, <laughs> she walks away eating her chicken wing. Oh. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> you go to enough events like that and you go, oh my goodness, what in the world are we afraid of? 
really. You know, when we have big events at Biola University, I'm usually uh, pitching our certificate program in apologetics, which is open to everybody, so I like to, I like to talk a lot about it. It's, we have a master's degree program, of course, but we have a certificate program, too, and it's, it's open to everybody from, you know, junior high students to, you know, retired people. And some people don't want to do the MA in apologetics because they already have, you know, two PhDs or something, and, but they do want to get some training, so they do our certificate program, and it's, it's uh, very accessible. Um, but when I'm pitching the certificate program, I say, if you do our certificate program, you, yes, you, will rise to the top 5% of l- religiously literate people in the world. And people go, wow, that must be some certificate program you have. I go, well, it's a very good certificate program. But the comment is really not about the certificate program. The comment is about the incredibly low level of understanding out there in the general public on these issues. What are we afraid of? Oh my goodness. You might get the impression because you're hearing from folks like uh, William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland and Paul Copan and the like that you know, everybody is asking complex philosophical issues you know, with symbolic logic and all this kind of thing. That is not the case. They've read the Da Vinci Code for goodness sakes and they're confused. <laughs> so <laughs> l- listening to a few good tapes, reading a few good books actually increase, uh, raises the bar considerably. And it actually does something else uh, and it, it, it helps the average Christian be more confident as a witness for Jesus Christ because so many people are terrified that they're going to present the gospel and somebody's going to ask them one of those hard questions they heard Richard Dawkins, you know, say on some YouTube video. And so we're just, we're just petrified. But it's really not that hard. And we, you can master this without even doing a master's degree. Attending a conference like this is a great first step. Read a few of the books, listen to some of the lectures over and over again, and pretty soon these ideas become your ideas, uh, this new vocabulary becomes yours, and suddenly you're really making a nuisance of yourself for Jesus in, in all the right ways. And really you have more confidence, and that's really the key to this, is, is you need confidence to step out and do this. And if you're afraid people are going to ask tough questions, you might not have that kind of confidence. But it's just not that hard. In fact, here's one takeaway you can, you can have this morning, right away. Uh, maybe, maybe you have uh, dinner tonight with some unbelievers. Uh, don't be afraid to bring up these issues because uh, here's uh, what we call at Biola the, the golden rule of apologetics. Ask of them as they ask of you. Ask of them as they ask of you. In other words, you know, they get kind of grouchy and they'll say, well, a Bible or oh, how can you believe in God or you don't really have a soul, it's all about your brain and so on. Um, just turn it around on them and with a smile and with great confidence and at great ease, just say, well, tell me, what do you think about God? Tell me, what do you think about the Bible? Tell me, what do you think about the soul? You know, and then watch the craziness fly. <laughs> I remember when I first became a Christian, I had this uncle who was a physicist. He was the, he was the most you know, brilliant person in our extended family and certainly with a more education than anybody else in the extended family. And he loved it because he was a scientist. He liked to pontificate on just about anything because, you know, scientists can do that, you know. They shouldn't, but they do do that. They think they sit at the peak of knowledge. And I would bring up some Christian issues and he'd start pontificating, you know. Uh, He'd ask me a question and I would throw it back to him and say, well, tell me, what what do you think about that? And then he would launch out into the craziest stuff. Like all of Christian doctrine came about because... uh, Priests weren't allowed to marry in the Middle Ages. What? You know? And my cousins who were, you know, 
unbelievers at the time, but, but interested because I'd become a Christian, were like, oh my goodness, you know, dad's just nuts on this stuff, you know? <laughs> and it was actually important witness to them to see how a, a non-Christian would handle the same kind of question they were trying to uh, pose to the Christian. So there's the golden rule of apologetics, something you can take with you. Well, um, I did my doctoral work at UC Santa Barbara. <laughs> Nobody's cheering. Sometimes I go and people go, yay, you know. <laughs> Didn't happen here, all right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful religious studies program, and, and they have a first-ranked faculty. It's a high-rated program, and they have, uh, uh, you know, I got a chance to study Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and uh, Judaism, you name it, uh, from people who are great scholars in these traditions and people who are devotees on the ground. And it was a great experience, especially as a kind of a, a Jesus-loving, you know, guy who wanted to go to grad school. I mean, you don't get a better opportunity to compare Christianity to all of the other uh, great world religious traditions. Well, when I did that, I discovered something about Christianity. And now I hope some of you may, might go on and do some doctoral work like this, but, but I'll boil it down for you uh, in case you don't. Here's what I learned. I can put it in a single phrase. Christianity is weird. We signed up for a strange one, we did. Uh, if there's a box called religion and you try to put Christianity into it, it doesn't fit very well. You have to stuff it and you know, break parts off and stuff some more. And still there's pieces just like flailing out of the box. You know? It just doesn't fit this box that religious studies scholars uh, think religion ought to be. It just doesn't match up very well. Christianity is bizarre. And there's a number of things that really set Christianity apart from the other great world religious traditions. Now, in a short time with you, I'm not able to highlight everything in, in a certain, uh, you know, in, in, in with great depth, but I think I'll give you a, a sense for how you can talk to people about how Christianity is different. It certainly is not the same as Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, etc. It's not the same. And I'll give you some, some clues to how to, how to uh, present that persuasively and quickly to people. But I had a great time at UC Santa Barbara. I loved it so much. And the thing I learned most about Christianity that, that, that makes it strange or weird is that it's testable. It's testable. You can offer evidence for it. You can offer evidence against it. And the evidence means something, right? You're thinking, well, can't you do that with the other religious traditions? No. I mean, even when it sounds like you can, you, you sometimes can't. Maybe you've had uh, Mormons at your door. Hello, sir. You know, and they want to talk to you about uh, the restoration of true Christianity called uh, Mormonism. And, uh, and it sounds like they're offering up some testable ideas, right? That there were gold plates upon which were inscribed reformed Egyptian characters, and Joseph Smith found these things and by the gift and power of God translated them into the Book of Mormon and so on. And all of this sounds like you could actually investigate it. Well, you can, and once you investigate and you found out this probably didn't really happen, and you're offering that evidence to the Mormons at your door, and they don't have any answers for them, and there aren't any good answers to these things, by the way, as you probably learned from Carl Moser last night, um, the missionaries have a move. They will step back and go, well, you make a pretty good point there. Um, I don't really know how to answer all that stuff, but you have to understand something. I've had an experience of this. See, it ends up being all about their personal subjective experience. There's really not any objective material to, to latch on to. So even when it sounds like it's testable, it's really not. It's really about their personal experience. There's nothing objective about it. 
So Christianity is testable, and, and let me read to you one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. I've never seen anything like this in the, in the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Buddhist Tripitaka, you, know, you name it. This is a very strange passage, and it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is weird stuff right here. The Apostle Paul is talking about resurrection in general, and then he focuses in on the resurrection of Jesus, and he says a couple of things that are kind of startling. Check this out. Starting with verse 12 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Really? He continues, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Oh, my. You know, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Why would I call that one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature? Because the Apostle Paul was a madman. What was he thinking? What he did was he hung Christianity by a thread, right? A thread. He basically said, if this didn't happen, then the whole thing comes crashing down. And, and all it requires is somebody to come along with a pair of scissors, snip, and kaboom, it all comes crashing down. If I'm an atheist, like Michael Martin you mentioned, Michael Martin focuses in on the resurrection and some of his writings because he knows it's a, it's a linchpin for Christianity. You take down the resurrection, you have done away with Christianity according to one of its founding apostles. Right? This is big stuff. Well, the good news is, as you probably learned last night from Gary Habermas, and as you can learn uh, to great death by reading books uh, written by folks like Mike Lacona and William Lane Craig, uh, the evidence for the resurrection is really stunningly good. That, that thread that Christianity hangs from is made out of some super titanium alloy you know, that, that breaks any pair of scissors that gets near to it. We have the goods on this. I think, I think we can claim to know that it happened. Now, that really, that really drives people nuts. I think, I think uh, Dallas Willard would agree with that on, on, when he presented on Thursday night. He was talking about faith versus knowledge. I think we can claim to know it because we have excellent reason to believe that the resurrection took place. And by the way, you should take great heart that you've got some wonderful scholars in the Evangelical Philosophical Society who spend a great deal of time uh, presenting evidence for this and defending the very idea that Jesus came back from the dead. And they're utterly convinced that it took place. It's amazing. This really happened. This is not about some weird inner experience you've had. You might have some weird inner experience, but uh, get this. Um, Christianity is true whether you believe it or not. Christianity is true whether you believe it or not. Wow, it's objectively true, and you can know it to be true. And God was very good to us, leaving a tremendous trail of objective evidence back through history testifying to this event. Uh, reminds me of a, oh, a relative. Do you have those relatives in your family where there have been so many marriages and rearrangements that you can't really identify the person you're sitting next to at Thanksgiving dinner? That's, that's what this, I'll just call him Alan, but he's a relative of some sort. Alan was an armchair uh, agnostic, you know, and sometimes atheist. He was a retired guy. He played golf and he watched television, basically, and he's very good at both of them. 
And so I remember going over to his home, I think it was on, uh, it was like Christmas time, you know? And whenever, normally when he sees me coming in the front door, because the TV room is like directly past the front door, he can, he can see me coming in. And when he sees me coming in, he's got his feet up on the couch, and he's got his remote, and he can draw it like a gunslinger, you know? And he pulls it out, he sees me coming, and he starts changing the channel. And why, why is he doing that? Because he's looking for the most outrageous Christian programming he can possibly find. People with gigantic hair, people with blazing white Nehru jackets, you know, people frothing and falling, you know. And so the moment I enter the room where he is to greet him, you know, he lands on that station. Oh, there's craziness on television. And he looks at me and says, hey, here's your people. <laughs> you know. Uh, miserable. Well, he tried that one time. I think it was like a Christmas time. And, and, and he didn't get very far. He sees me coming. He's like, do, do, do. And he stopped, and, and they were having some sort of documentary on the historical Jesus, and it was really well done. They were showing like 3D models of ancient Jerusalem, what Jesus might have looked like based on these skeletal features of ancient Semitic men. And, but it was a biography of Jesus, and if you're doing a biography of Jesus, eventually you're going, you're going to get to the crucifixion. And you know how these documentaries work. You know, a, a title comes up, ooh, you know, the crucifixion. You know. And... And then they interview scholars, you know, in front of books, you know, or, or out in the quad. And, uh, you know, I knew most of the people they were interviewing, as my colleagues do too. And, and they, they'd actually thrown in a couple of conservative scholars, so it was kind of refreshing, you know. Um, but it didn't matter whether they were conservative, uh, liberal, radical, or whatever. When they were talking about the crucifixion, everybody they interviewed said, oh yeah, done deal, take it to the bank. Jesus was a real historical figure, and uh, he was killed at the hands of a Roman crucifixion team in uh, first century Jerusalem, you know, take it to the bank, done deal, chisel it in stone, whatever, you know. Wow, everybody across the board. Well, then they get to the next segment in the life of Jesus, and you know what that would be, you know, mm, the resurrection, you know. And then they interview the same scholars in front of the same books and out in the same quads, and except for the couple of conservatives, everybody else was saying things like, well, who knows what happened in those tumultuous times, you know, so long, long ago, you know? That's the sound of my head hitting the coffee table. Because <laughs> I, I was the one frothing and falling now. I'm, I'm like hollering at the television. You're like, what? They can't do that, oh my goodness. You know, the exact same body of evidence that tells us that he was killed by a Roman crucifixion team is the exact same body of evidence, one step, one page over, that tells us that he came back from the grave in his own body on the third day. This is not about evidence anymore. This is about worldview. These people just can't entertain the idea of a miracle, blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah, I'm frothing, I'm falling. <laughs> God has been very good to us. We can know that this happened. The evidence is quite stunning. And when you make a claim like the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we need that kind of evidence, right? If Jesus did not come back from the dead, our faith is worthless. So Christianity is testable. It's testable. <clears throat> Let me give you a few other things that help set Christianity apart from the other great religious traditions. And you'll find all of these in, in uh, the five sacred crossings. You'll find it in novel form, but you'll, but you'll get it there in, in even a little bit of depth. Uh, let, me, let me explain these other issues by telling a, a story 
because this is where I first like came upon these things that set Christianity apart. They'd been bubbling in me, but, but at one point I had a chance to really express them, and it was a strange event down at uh, Long Beach City College in Southern California. I get a call uh, from, from something, uh, you know, it's been a teaching assistant down there, and he, they're trying to find representatives of uh, the various world religions to come into a world religion class and, and talk about their, their particular tradition. It was the end of the term, the professor was just bringing in guest speakers, and they wanted me to come in and talk about fundamentalism. You know, I, they, they called Biola because they figured that's where the fundamentalists are, you know. And it, it is funny that they called the general operator, and uh, we have like, you know, what, 300 faculty members at, at Biola. They ask for a fundamentalist, and the operator transfers it to me, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's good or not, but I was really glad the call came to me because they explained what was going on. I said, you know, I'd be happy to do that. So it was the following week, I got prepped up. I was gonna give a kind of a lecture on the American fundamentalist movement. I didn't mind doing that. Uh, so I went down to the college, and it was an early morning class, and uh, you know, they looked a bit like you walking in this morning. Uh, they were a bit bleary-eyed, but it was a pretty big-sized lecture hall, and this was a popular class. I guess people uh, you know, at the community colleges really like to you know, learn about world religions. A lot of them are in there kicking the tires and taking something out for a test drive. You know, hey, maybe I could check out Buddhism or Hinduism, you know? So they're in there, and, and it's, it's popular for that reason. They're kind of checking it out. Uh, they looked a little bit haggard when they came in, but they all had big cups of Starbucks. And so I knew it wouldn't be long before they were up and running. <laughs> so they gave me an introduction, and the, the professor didn't do it. In fact, he looked like he had the flu. So I didn't really want to get too close to him. Turns out he didn't have the flu. He actually had a hangover. Um, he... <laughs> Towards the end of the term, what he would do is he'd, he'd go out, you know, drinking and chasing girls all night, and he'd turn the class over to teaching assistants and guest speakers, you know. So there he was looking terrible. In fact, he kind of gave a, a note to a teaching assistant to introduce me, and he went over to the end of the first row of tables and just put his head down, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I have free reign here, you know. <laughs> and the, the introduction was kind of terrible, and, and I, I just didn't like the atmosphere. So... <laughs> I actually did, when I saw his head down, I go, hey, everybody, you know, we could talk about fundamentalism if you'd like, but how about something else? What if, what if we do something like how a thoughtful person would go about a religious quest? You know, I know a lot of you are in here, you know, taking certain religions out for a test drive, trying to learn about them. What if, what if you did this in a very thoughtful way? I mean, here you are at the college studying accounting and art history and biochemistry and so on. How can you approach uh, the study of religion or the evaluation of religion in the same way, using the same kind of you know, mind power that you're employing in your other classes? And they're like, yeah, let's do that. You, know, you could tell the Starbucks was kicking in. They're slithering up in their chairs. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. I go, excellent. You know, I was really happy they were with me on that. I said, well, uh, so I was just totally winging it. You know? uh, well, it, it seems to me that if you are on a religious quest of some sort, that it makes the most sense if you were to start that quest with Christianity. Actually, that, that's how they looked. You know? <laughs> um, and then there was this one guy. He was in the back of the room. He had a skateboard, long blonde hair. I just call him skateboard guy. He actually ended up in the novel. I made him a character in the novel. Uh, uh, I call him in the novel Darren, and... And, uh, but he was, he, was a, he was a guy who looked like he didn't know anything, but he's actually a lot smarter, you know, than he looked. He, you know, in fact, in, in the book, I, I say that he was, a, uh, he was a, uh, a philosophy student at Stanford who spent too much time surfing. 
And so he, his grades went down and dad wouldn't pay for school anymore. And so he had to prove himself at the community college. That was probably the case, although I don't know that for sure. <laughs> but every time I would say something that that's didn't, didn't gel with this guy, he would actually stand up and go, you know, like, dude, you know. <laughs> how, you, how you gonna show that or what do you mean? And the first thing he says, oh, he goes, I thought you weren't gonna talk about fundamentalism. And the first thing you say is you gotta start with Christianity. And I said, oh, well, well, uh, I can see why you would think that, but, but let me give you some reasons. Let me give you five reasons why a thoughtful person would start their quest with Christianity. And you have notes in your, in your uh, conference folder that'll help guide you through this. I don't know if I can get to all five, but I'll at least get to four of them. They're all contained in the book. And so they're like, okay, what do you got? I, said, I think you'll like the first reason a great deal. And it's, it's this, Christianity is testable. It's a great reason to start with Christianity because it's testable. You can offer evidence for it, you can offer evidence against it, and the evidence means something. And I read them that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, you know, showed them that, that you know, Zen Buddhists aren't exactly enamored of objective evidence and so on, and it showed that Christianity sits apart. Now, I didn't say Christianity is true because of this, I just said this is the best place to start because, and I made this case, you can actually investigate it and dismiss it if it's wrong, right? In other words, if, if, the, if you study the evidence for the resurrection and go, this doesn't have legs to stand on at all, you can actually shove it aside and move on to something else. So made the first point that, that that's an excellent reason to start with Christianity because you can investigate it and actually make some determinations in a finite amount of time. I actually talked to a great Buddhist teacher one time and I said, how, how many cycles on the wheel of samsara you know, will it take as lifetimes? How many, how many lifetimes will it take uh, before you're kind of thrown off of the wheel and into nirvana? And he goes, oh, I don't know. We, we talk about this once in a while. Maybe something like on the order of one times 10 to the 60th lifetimes, you know? So I told the students, I go, so maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of years of studying the resurrection versus one times 10 to the 60th lifetimes. It makes sense to start with Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you, you, want to be, you want to be efficient with your time, you know. <laughs> so the fir first reason, they, they were actually with me at that point. They were really with me when they got to the second point. The second reason a thoughtful person would start their quest with Christianity is that salvation in the system is free. It's a free gift. And these were college students. <laughs> they understood the concept of free, you know. They're always looking for a free sandwich and a free music download and a free haircut, you know. Free, free, free. So they understood that. I made the point, no crawling over jagged rocks for miles to lay some offering in some temple, no sitting in lotus positions that might give you arthritis for hours on end. <laughs> Nothing like that. It's a free gift given to you by God. And it's got, it comes with an interesting advantage because it's free. Uh, there's really no uh, salvation hierarchy. You're either in or you're out. There's no, there's no superstars with regard to salvation. You know? And, and whether you're um, able-bodied or not able-bodied, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether it doesn't matter what color your skin is, it's, it's equal access. So across the board, because it's a free gift, there's nothing you can do to earn this. And I read to them that, that you know, famous passage from Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, that no one should boast. By the way, brothers and sisters, I'm not sure we make enough of that. I think we need to, we need to highlight that aspect more. Very often, people just don't understand 
the, the, the free gift of God that is in Christ. And it's something to behold. People, people always confuse it with a whole list of to-dos and uh, not to-dos. And I think we need to help emphasize that it is the real deal. Uh, I'll move on. The third reason, the third reason that a thoughtful person would start their quest with Christianity is that you get a tremendous worldview fit. You get an amazing worldview fit. Uh, what I'm saying here is that Christianity paints a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. Christianity paints a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. Well, that's a, that's a pretty tall order, what I'm saying there. I mean, to demonstrate that's very difficult. An old skateboard guy knew that. He, he leapt to his feet again. How in the world are you going to demonstrate that? I mean, you're saying that like every fact in the world sort of matches up with the Christian view of things. How are you going to demonstrate that? And he had a good point. I go, you have a good point. I'm not going to be able to do that. I mean, I, I run a Master of Arts program in Christian apologetics, and we can't even scratch the surface on this kind of thing. Uh, but let me give you one very important example. And this comes from the, the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. And you've heard about this in, in some of these plenary sessions, and in, even in your breakouts. It's a very important issue. But I said, Christianity actually does an excellent job with this. And I said, uh, uh, in Eastern religious traditions, by and large, they have an approach to evil, pain, and suffering. Uh, they approach it as maya or illusion. And really, it's about the person coming into the right state of mind so that they understand it's an illusion, and evil, pain, and suffering will sort of fade away or, or, or evaporate like the, the morning dew on a leaf when the sun comes out. That's the kind of thing. Um, that you might encounter in some Eastern religious traditions with regard to evil, pain, and suffering. That's how you approach it. You just got to get in the right frame of mind. Christianity doesn't approach it that way. We think it's real, and we think people really suffer. And, and I gave them an example. Uh, here, uh, in the classroom, the door's open in the back, and in walks an elderly woman. She's got a limp, she's got a cane, and she, she comes down the center aisle, and she sits here in the front. Well, this doesn't happen very often, so we say, Madam, what's your story? Then she gets up and tells this gripping tale of the Holocaust, her personal experience. She's just a young girl in Poland, and uh, you know, some sort of Nazi group comes in and starts rounding up people and, and uh, uh, taking them from their homes. Her whole village is basically exported on train cars to, to concentration camps. People are dying left and right on these train cars, suffocating and so on. When they get there, they bring these people off the trains and they start to separate them out. Some go immediately to their death. Some get a chance to work for a little while. This young, this young girl gets a chance to work for a while and, and that was fortunate because Russian troops come in and liberate the camp, right? And so there she is standing, uh, nearly naked, nearly starved to death. Nobody in her family, nobody in her village left. What are you gonna tell her? You're going to tell her, cheer up, lady. You know, turn that frown upside down, you know. <laughs> just think happy thoughts, and then the world will be your oyster, you know. Or, or just get into a different frame of mind. This is kind of the Oprah approach to evil, pain, and suffering. And you know what? When you're talking to a person who has really suffered, and many in this room have really suffered, many in this room will go through some suffering. We don't want to think of it as illusion. Here's how Christianity handles it. 
we don't call it an illusion, we think it's real. And we worship a savior who himself suffered. And we worship a God who will, and he's promised this, one day wipe away every tear and correct every injustice. We, as children of God, are called to get down in the pain and suffering of people and bear them up as best we can. I don't think there's any other religion that holds a candle to the way Christianity approaches the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. We don't have all the answers to individual sufferers. We don't. But I think we've got, a, we've got an important approach to the overall issue of evil, pain, and suffering that makes a great deal of sense more than what you're going to get in Eastern religious traditions. Christianity paints a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. And I think that's a vital uh, example in the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. The fourth reason a thoughtful person would start their quest with Christianity is this. You get to live a non-compartmentalized life. You get to live a non-compartmentalized life. Put differently, you get to live a holistic life. That's usually, not the, that's usually not thought to be part of Christianity. If you talk to people who embrace Eastern religious traditions, they generally think that Christians are bifurcated. We are the ones living compartmentalized life. But in terms of uh, reason and religion, Christians get to bring a whole package together. Uh, take, take an Eastern religious tradition, for instance. Uh, by and large, they separate out what goes on in your everyday life from your religious life. They live in two different compartments. What do I mean by that? Well, in the everyday life, and a person who, who uh, practices an Eastern religious tradition, logic and reason apply moment by moment just like it does to the rest of us in everyday life, right? I mean, uh, if, you're, if you're a Buddhist, you have to look both ways before you cross the street and, and critically evaluate whether that is a Mack truck coming down the street or a fluffy pillow, right? Makes a difference. You have to look at the label and read carefully to make sure you're feeding your baby uh, strained peas and not like battery acid or something, right? You gotta make sure. Those, those are just you know, kind of a glib examples of the kind of rationality we use moment by moment. However, if you're... Uh, if you embrace an Eastern religious tradition, it's very likely that when you step into the religious realm, those critical evaluations go away. Uh, if you know a little bit of logic, A can equal non-A all day long. Your, your life, your religious life can be filled with contradictions, right? Uh, the Buddha can really be Muhammad and so on. It doesn't matter. You just don't, uh, you, you, can, you can walk through it and not really have to engage your mind. Christianity is very different in that respect, in that the same kind of critical analysis we use in everyday life actually flows right into our religious life. We worship God with our mind, right? We worship a God who says, come let us reason. We worship Jesus who is called the logos, the word or the reason of God. We are supposed to walk into Christianity with our eyes wide open and our minds critically engaged so that we can know um, him who we worship. We want to know him. We want to understand him as best we can. So in Christianity, you actually get to live a holistic life. The two spheres of everyday life and religious life come together. In Eastern religious traditions, they remain hopelessly separated. So in Christianity, you get to live a non-compartmentalized life. The fifth reason that a thoughtful person would start their quest with Christianity The fifth reason actually caused old skateboard guy to leap to his feet again. The fifth reason is this. Christianity has Jesus at the center. 
Now you can see why that caused skateboard guy to leap to his feet. Oh, he says, um, you wait until the last minute to pull the Jesus card. Oh. And by the way, that, it was true. Class was over. There were people like standing in the wings waiting to get into the classroom for the next class. The, the professor for the next class was sitting there tapping his foot. The guy who was actually the professor of the class I was in was still over with his head down. It was a hopeless mess. So the pressure was on. I said, yes, yes, Christianity has Jesus at the center. I said, what have you been learning in this class? Don't you know that Jesus is, is the unique uh, and universal religious figure? They go, huh? I go, oh. Professor had his head down. They go, what have you been learning in this class? You, know? um, you see, everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody want, uh, if you are a Buddhist, you might believe that, jo- that, that Jesus was an incarnation of the Buddha himself. If not that, maybe a great bodhisattva in the Mahayana tradition. If not that, uh, if you're, in, uh, if you're in, in a Hindu tradition, you might think that Jesus is an avatar of Vishnu of some sort. If not, a, a great universal religious teacher who ought to be embraced. So it doesn't matter what, what tradition you wander into, everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Even in Islam, Jesus emerges as a figure greater than Muhammad himself. I don't know the exact score, but it's like Muhammad was a prophet, yes. Jesus was a prophet, so it's one to one. But then Jesus was born of a virgin and he was a miracle worker according to Islamic tradition. And he will also be standing at the scales of judgment at the end of time. I'm not sure the exact score, but something like, you know, Jesus four, Muhammad one, you know? Uh, Jesus is a unique religious figure, so it makes perfect sense that if you are a thoughtful person on a religious quest, that you would start that quest with Christianity. Now, uh, that, that was the presentation this morning uh, 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 on that particular morning at Long Beach City College. I walked out of the room, you know, as people were pushing me, basically, and about half the class followed me right to some lunch tables, and we sat and talked for another three hours. They never heard anything like this. Again, what are we afraid of? Just some basic, simple presentations about the unique character of Christianity can actually capture people's imagination. You know, it strikes me, people, people really, their, their hearts are strangely moved by these kinds of messages. Uh, I think we have to remember that, that we are in possession of something tremendous. We are in possession of the great story of all that ever was, is, or will be. We are in possession of that. We've got to learn how to articulate that clearly to a lost culture. In some ways, they are dying for this message. Some will reject it, some will embrace it with all their heart. And we've got to be prepared to offer that incredible message of the saving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.